Let's pray. Father, you are indeed holy. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to experience your holiness now as we look into your word. And Father, we ask that you would cause it to be like a purifying fire. We pray that you would be removing impurities from our hearts so that we do not experience dishonor. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to know you and cause our sense of your holiness and the coming judgment. Lord, we pray that these things would make us feel an urgency, an obligation, and an eagerness to boldly proclaim the gospel. We ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open in the Bible this morning to Romans chapter 1, and we will be looking at the last part of Romans chapter 1. And this is going to be a little bit of a heavy sermon, at least at first, so I'm going to start with uh, something on a lighter note. So Jed, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and put that next slide up on the screen. So there's the application front-loaded for you, formed in the, in the shape of a chiasm. You won't be surprised. Um, and, and let me just walk through this for a second. Um, this, is, this is how I would suggest you apply this sermon. Number one, so you can be thinking about this as we go through the passage. Number one, we want to know God. We want to know God. This is the kind of God we have in the Bible. The God described doing what this passage says he does. And then, complementing that, the last item there, we want to walk with God. So we want to know him to walk with him. And then the middle item there is we want to fight our sin. We want to fight our sin because God doesn't tolerate impurity in his presence. He's holy, he's clean, so we want to know him and fight sin so that we can walk with him. And then, uh, corresponding to these things, we, as we look at this passage, I'm going to urge you to behold the terrible justice of God described in this passage. And then complementing that, that's the second thing, behold justice. Complementing that, the second to last thing, we should respond to the justice of God that we see in Romans 1, 24 through 32, by feeling an urgency to proclaim the gospel. It is only the gospel that delivers people from the justice that we will behold together this morning. And then the, the third item, um, and, and the third to last item, we want to fear God, and we want to be prompted by that to pray for people, to pray for people. So, so there's your application. Jed, you can take that slide away. We might come back to it at the end if we have time. And I would invite you now to look with me at Romans 1. And as, you, as we turn to this passage, there was a tragedy that took place just recently that makes, makes me think of what's going on, what Paul is describing here. Just a couple of Fridays ago, August the 31st, in the neighborhood where the Burks and the Brelands live, there was a 15-year-old boy named Davy Albright who was playing by a drain 
in the midst of these heavy rains. And he slipped into the drain, and the overwhelming weight of the water swept him away. And he could not get out of the water, and he could not resist the water, and the water forced him through about 100 yards of, of underground drain pipe and then spit him out in another lawn nearby. He did not survive. And, and what we're looking at here, what we're looking at here in Romans 1, 24 through 32, is the way that human beings slip into sinful idolatry. And, and only the difference here is it's not necessarily accidental. People volitionally go into idolatry, but then they find themselves under the weight of overwhelming forces that on their own they cannot overcome and that they cannot get out of. And, and, and then they're sucked into this, this, this current that's too much and they're forced deeper and deeper and there's only death at the bottom. That's what Romans 1, 24 through 32 is describing. Douglas Moo writes, like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned. God's, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. As we work through this passage, we're going to see that it gets progressively worse the deeper you go. Now the good news here, the good news is that this is part of what is motivating Paul to preach the gospel. So let's, let's step back from this passage for just a second and, and, and get our, our, our sense of the context. Let me invite you to look back at verse 14 where Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to Jews, to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel. And then in verse 16 he says he's not ashamed of this gospel, and he's going to give us three reasons he's not ashamed of that gospel. Number one, it's the power of God for salvation. That's in the middle of verse 16. Number two, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. That's verse 17. And then number three, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed in it. And this passage that we're looking at is detailing the wrath of God. So, so look at verse 24. You see that word, therefore. Therefore. God gave them up. That therefore is responding to what Paul has said in verses 18 through 23. It's responding to the way that in verse 18, there was ungodliness and unrighteousness. We might render ungodliness there irreverence. So there's this disregard for God. And then there's this, this mistreatment of other people and the rest of creation. So it's it's vertical and it's horizontal, irreverence and unrighteousness. And then also in verse 18, you see that, that phrase, suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So this is also informing the therefore. Verses 19 and 20 speak of the way that God made himself known. And at the end of verse 20, look at the end of verse 20 there. So they are without excuse. Can you imagine being without excuse? excuse at the final tri tribunal. The holy judge seated on the throne, the books opened, and there is no excuse. That's, that's, these are the people to whom Paul is eager to preach the gospel because this is the only deliverance for them. This is their only hope because in verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor him or give thanks to him. 
at the end of verse 21, they became futile in their thinking, they became foolish in heart, and they became darkened in understanding. In verse 22, they're, they're protesting about how wise they are, all the while they are evidencing their own folly. And it culminates in verse 23, where they exchange the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we talked last week about how it's, it's as though Paul is alluding here to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where he speaks of how he's going to make man in his own likeness and image. And man's role is to relate appropriately to God and appropriately to creation. So Paul is still reflecting on these things. But just to be clear on the therefore here, it's as though what's happened is God made humanity, made mankind, to image forth his glory. And instead of doing that, what man did, what we've all done, is rejected God and thereby ruined ourselves. So, so what this passage is, is describing is the way that, that people, the way that we've rejected our created purpose. And in rejecting the purpose for which God created us, we, we defile and dishonor and ruin ourselves, our own lives. So in this passage... Paul is describing the way that idolatry leads to defilement and dishonor and then further sin. This, this wrath that, that's described here, it's falling on God's image bearers who have refused to live out their created identity. Again, that created identity is we're, we're supposed to reflect God's character back to him by worshiping him and thanking him and to the rest of creation. And, and in this passage, if, if, if we think about, again, verse 16, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, and we think about the reasons Paul, again, might have felt shame as a result of preaching the gospel, it's reflection on these realities that obliterate that shame, that take away that shame. Paul is reflecting on the way that humanity's rejection of its role results in the wrath of God. And three times in this passage, Paul's going to talk about how God gave them over or gave them up as the ESV renders it. And each time, each time God gave them over, it's like what we're given over to gets worse. So the good news is, the good news is that the God that, that Paul is proclaiming is a God whose redemptive power is stronger than the waters of his own judgment. God's redemptive power reverses his own judgment, and this God can raise the dead. And remarkably, as, as, we, as we go through these, this passage and we see these de sins detailed, and then if we, when we continue through the book of Romans, we'll see that the very sins that are described here, the opposite of these sins is called for in the life of believers. So, so what Paul is saying is this gospel, it not only saves you from God's wrath at the end, it transforms your life here and now. It gives you life, the life of the age to come, in the present so that you can escape 
the chains of these sins and no longer be slaves to this sin, but instead slaves to righteousness, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6. So look with me at the first instance of this phrase, therefore God gave them up, in verse 24. Paul writes here, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This word lusts, you could render this word desires. When this word is used in in contexts where people are not desiring wicked things, it it can be a righteous desire. So for instance, in 1 Timothy 3, if any man desires the office of elder, he he desires a noble task. It's the same term here. So so it's depending on where the desire is, is is pointed, if the desire is pointed at something noble and good, then it's righteous. If it's pointed at something forbidden and evil or corrupted and perverted, it's lust. And look at what happens here in verse 24. Because of the exchange in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for images. Because of the exchange, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to Impurity. This is terrible justice. And and what this implies is that these people should have desired God. These people should have desired God. They didn't desire God, so verse 23, they exchange him for something else. So be very clear here, this is a worship issue. This is an issue where these people, really all of us, humanity, We ought to be looking to God to satisfy our longings and our yearnings and to find the fulfillment that we we so strain for all through life. And instead of straining for God, we strain for something else. We exchange Him and we begin to worship that other thing. That's idolatrous. And what God does is He says, you can have it. And he, and he, He gives people over to the desires of their hearts. And look at the result. Therefore, God gave them up in the, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So God is holy, and to seek God, to seek to please God, to indulge yourself on God, all of this is pure and undefiled and clean and life-giving. It's life-giving. It's clean to worship God. Not to desire God is to make yourself unclean. It's to defile yourself. It's to, it's to make yourself impure. And the reason, in part, is because you were made to seek God. You were made to, verse 21, honor Him as God and give thanks to Him. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, and then that leads to dishonor. In verse 24, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now again, let's think of the contrary here. There can be nothing more noble. There can be nothing more honorable. There can be nothing more upright for a human being to do than seek God. That's the most upright, noble, honorable thing that we can do is seek God. God, not to seek him, is ignoble, dishonorable. And I was trying to come up with an antonym for upright, and I don't really want down left, 
So we might say down wrong. Not seeking God is the opposite of being upright and noble. And so God gives you over to what you've chosen. Dishonor. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. When he says this, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, he's hinting at what he's going to spell out in verses 26 and 27. But in verse 25, he goes back to the exchange. Now, let's think about, let's try, let's try to get our, our hearts around the exchange. So I, I want you to think of something of, of extreme value, and I'll, I'll, I'll just offer you uh, the opportunity to think about some of the young ladies in our church who have recently become engaged. And so what's happened here is, is a young man has, has promised to this young lady, I'm going to be faithful to you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to lead you spiritually, I'm always going to be your husband. And as a token of this pledge, he gives this engagement ring. The kind of exchange that's been made is the kind of exchange if one of these young ladies were to say, I don't want that. I, I don't want the life of happiness that this young man has promised me. What I think I'll do is go to this pawn shop across the street and sell this, this treasure cheap so that I can get some money so that I can go buy some heroin. And, and do you know what she's thinking as she does this? She thinks, I'm going to go live a life of a perpetual high. But you know what's really going to happen? What's really going to happen is she's going to find that that path does not lead to happiness, but ruin and enslavement, defilement and dishonor. That's the kind of choice that we make when we exchange the glory of the immortal God, the incorruptible God, for images resembling corruptible, mortal man. God gave them up because, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So the truth, what's the truth? The truth is that God is all-satisfying. What's the truth? The truth is that we were made to know and love God, to worship Him, and to reflect His character to all creation. What's the truth? The truth is what Paul's going to say at the end of verse 25, that the Creator is blessed, blessed forever. He's, he alone is worthy of worship. These are the truths. What's the lie? The lie is that we can satisfy ourselves any other place. The lie is that the sin that tempts us is somehow going to bring us fulfillment or status or pleasure or any kind of satisfaction. That's the lie. And, and what we've all done, we're all sinners. What humanity has done is exchange the truth about God for a lie. And look at what it goes on to say, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Now, this is, this is just a restatement of verse 23, where we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. At, at, at root, part of this is we begin to worship ourselves. And it's the worship of ourselves that leads to 
this deviant behavior that's described. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. As I was thinking about this lie, I I thought about um, what happened in Texas in 1938. In 1938, there was a Texas politician who ran for governor. His name was Pappy O'Daniel. And Pappy O'Daniel was a radio personality, and he had this wonderful, warm voice that made people think that he was like their grandfather. And, And he could sell anything on the radio, and then the governor's seat became open, and Pappy decided to run for governor. And then he started making promises. And he promised to the people of Texas, he said, you elect me governor, and I will ensure that everyone in Texas over 65, this is 1938, right after the Depression, right before World War II, times are hard, um, and, and in Texas, life is hard, people are farmers, uh, they, don't have, they don't have air conditioning yet, many places they don't have electricity yet. So as people begin to age, they begin to fear How am I going to live? How am I going to provide for myself when I'm too old and frail to continue working? And so Pappy steps into that situation and he says, everyone in Texas, if I'm elected governor, everyone in Texas over the age of 65 will receive $30 a month as a pension, which is an enormous sum of money in that day. For, for the population of Texas, that would be $100 million a year, four times the state budget. When Pappy was asked how he planned to pay for this, he refused to answer the question. Well, they elected him. Overwhelmingly, they elected him governor. And then the, the biographer who recounts this, he writes, quote, this is after he's governor, he refused to discuss new taxes to pay for the pension plan. And with this refusal, his pension plan was effectively dead. That man had no intention of instituting $30 a month for every, everybody over 65 in Texas. No intent. It was a lie. It was a lie. And he got elected on the lie. They elected their governor on the basis of a lie, and they did not get what they were promised. And when we choose to sin... We do so on the basis of a lie, and we do not get what we were promised. You will never get from sin what sin has promised you. God, by contrast, always keeps his promises. He tells us the way is hard, the gate is narrow, and it is, but he tells us it leads to life, and it does. Look at verse 26. For this reason, and I think the reason Paul says for this reason again, it's just like verse 24. Verse 24, that therefore was immediately, immediately responding to verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. And then it's restated in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And so for this reason, because of that exchange again in verse 26, God gave them up, exact same words, to dishonorable passions. Again, dishonor. Look at verse 24. To the dishonoring of their bodies. And now, dishonorable passions. You know what passions are? Passions are even stronger desires. That's what passions are. And so what happens is, 
We choose something else in place of God. God gives us over to that. And then if we keep making that choice, we keep making that exchange, the chains just get thicker and heavier. The the desire for that, the insatiable desire, the unsatisfied desire just gets stronger. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The remarkable thing about all this, about what Paul is preaching, and the reason that he's eager to preach, is that in response to this shocking behavior, this horrifying behavior, in which we've dishonored ourselves, the Blessed One Himself bore our shame. We've defiled ourselves, and the defiling of the Holy One accomplishes our cleansing. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and God sent the truth to set us free. So we made this terrible exchange, but God sent Jesus to capture our imagination and to lay claim to our allegiance. And in God's great mercy, He frees us from the sinful desires of our hearts and redirects our hearts to Himself. That's the good news. That's why this passage is following Paul saying, I'm under obligation to preach this, verse 14. I'm eager to preach it, verse 15. I'm not ashamed of this message, verse 16. Look at the middle of verse 26 where Paul writes, for their women, some translations render it for even their women. And I think that the The fact that Paul starts with the women here is he does this to make it more shocking. It's shocking that people would behave this way. It's shocking that women women would behave this way. For even their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. What Paul is speaking of here is the way that God made humanity to function a certain way. Parts correspond with parts. Men and women correspond to one another. God designed it that way. And that natural, designed, created purpose is being rejected in favor of something that's unnatural. And and so really what Paul is describing in verses 26 and 27 is the same thing that he's been describing in verses 23 through 25. The natural, created intention of a human being is know and worship God, relate appropriately to Him, and then be righteous to all creation. And we reject that natural created function and we're given over to unnatural things, to irreverence and unrighteousness. And similarly, an instance of this, an instance of this, an example of this is people rejecting the natural created function of their reproductive organs for unnatural uses of those organs. I think that David Peterson is right here, and I think this is an important caveat for us to remember. Peterson writes, Paul is not suggesting that this is somehow the journey of every individual, but rather the broad history of humanity, which impacts individuals in different ways. He's concerned with societal patterns, not with tracing in detail the genesis of every form of deviant behavior. In other words, not everybody is going to be unnatural in this particular way. And this is not the only instance of being unnatural. It's just something that Paul picks out and says, look, idolatry leads to unnatural behavior like this. 
N.T. Wright, along these same lines, writes this, the existence of homosexual practice in a culture is a sign that that culture as a whole has been worshiping idols and that its God-given male and female order is being fractured as a result. So commit idolatry, God-given order is fractured as a result. This is clearly a judgment of God. This is both the, the experience the, the evidence and the con- consequence of rebellion against God, the existence of, of same-sex relations. It's the evidence of rejection of God. It's the consequence of rejection of God. Look at verse 27. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts. There's that dishonor again. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And now in verse 27, shameless acts. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What we're, what we're talking about here is an exchange of the right worship of God for despicable idolatry. And that despicable idolatry results in people give, being given over to things that are unclean, defiling, dishonorable, and then shameless. We rightly honor people who are passionate for goodness. When, when people are, are zealous for good things, we rightly honor them. Similarly, when people whose passion plunges them into evil do- deeds that are going to ruin their own lives and then harm other people, we despise that behavior. That's what dishonor is. I want to make four observations on what, on what Paul says here. Four observations on what Paul says here about how same-sex uh, behavior, same-sex uh, attraction and, and interaction is an evidence of God's wrath and a consequence of humanity's rebellion. First, Paul clearly believes that God created men and women so that the natural relations take place between one man and one woman in the context of the covenant of marriage. Paul clearly believes that. That's what's natural. Second, the rejection of the knowledge of God has resulted in all manner of unrighteousness and perversity. And here Paul is just using these same-sex relations as an illustration of that perversity. So this is an illustration of the broader twistedness of humanity that results from our idolatry. Third, since this follows verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed, we must conclude that when people are given over to this, it's a revelation of God's wrath. God's wrath is visited on the world in many ways. One way that God's wrath is is revealed is through the unnatural relations that result from dishonorable Passions. And then fourth, 
also following verse 18. We can be confident. We can be confident that one reason Paul is obligated and eager and unashamed about preaching the gospel is because the gospel saves people from this. The gospel can save people from God's wrath and liberate them from sin's power. That doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's going to have a, a strong passion for someone of the opposite sex, but it does mean they can be freed from the tyranny of same sex desire. In the last section, verses 28 through 32, Paul describes how people are given over to godlessness. Um, so the first part of this, verses 24 and 25, were given over to impurity. And then verses 26 and 27, given over to dishonor. And now verses 28 through 32, given over to godlessness. Look at verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Really what this is saying is since they did not, did not think it appropriate to retain the knowledge of God. They thought they could do without him. God gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them up to a mind that was not fit to do what ought not to be done. And then in verses 29 through 31, Paul describes a panoply of evil. And this is a carefully structured panoply of evil. It's, it's, it's remarkable how this falls out. The first four words are characteristics. This is, this is what characterizes people that have rejected the knowledge of God. In verse uh, 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. You, you notice how those four words, they're not describing particular acts or particular sins. This just characterizes people that don't walk with God, people that don't fear God. And then after those four characteristics, you've got seven Greek words that describe particular sins of either action or tongue. So it says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. There's your seven Greek words. And then here's the central issue. There's this one word right in the middle of this list. In the middle of verse 30, haters of God. That's the problem. They hate God. They go from not they go from refusing to honor him as God and give thanks to him to hating him. And then after that, you've got seven more Greek words, some of which form two-word pairs. So he says here, they're insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. So you've got four characteristics, seven words describing sin, haters of God, seven more words describing sin, and then four final characteristics in verse 31. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is what characterizes people who don't know God. And it culminates in verse 32. It says... Though they knew God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. How did they know that? How did they know that? Apparently from verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20, what can be known about God is plain to them because God God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. 
So not only do they know what's right and wrong, they also seem to perceive, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Look at what Paul says there in verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And what this does is it creates a culture. A culture where people treat unrighteousness as righteous. And correspondingly, righteousness is going to be viewed as unrighteous. So what's being described here is the way that humanity has gone terribly wrong. Humanity created to worship and know God, created to reflect God's glory in God's creation, has been ruined. It made me think of, it made me think of heroin. Do you know that the word heroin comes from a German word, harrowish? And the reason they named it that is for the heroic feeling. Now, and, and it was named by, by a company called Bayer. You've probably heard of Bayer. You've probably seen it on your aspirin bottle. Bayer created heroin. Heroin, heroin was, was created by a legal pharmaceutical drug maker back at the end of the 1800s. And what they were trying to do, they were trying to harness the, the pleasure and the, the relief from pain that people get from the poppy plant and they're trying to create a, a drug that was not addictive so that people could experience the pain relief without the addiction that would result from it. So they create this drug and they name it heroic, heroin. Andrew Sullivan writes about this. The poppy's paradox is a profoundly human one. If you want to bring heaven to earth, you must also bring hell because it is addictive. They failed. And, and that's the way that idolatry is. It's the, same, it's the same sequence. Something that's created good is made into an idol, a God replacement. And then all manner of defilement and ruin and dishonor ending in death results. Andrew Sullivan writes, more than two million Americans are now hooked on some kind of opioid and the drugoses, dr drug overdoses in just the last year claimed more lives than were lost in all of the Vietnam War. The good news, though, is that the gospel brings life. The good news is that God's power is stronger than these forces. And, and with life, the gospel brings cleansing and honor and restoration and reconciliation. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we're just pleading with you. Won't you turn to him? Won't you turn away from the dead idols to serve the living God who made you so that you could experience his glory? Won't you turn to the one who can alone satisfy you? The one who alone is worthy of your gratitude and worship. And for those of us here who are believers... We want to be like Paul and feel this obligation to proclaim this good news. This is a good news that not only rescues people from lives of dishonor and ruin, it rescues them from an eternity under the wrath of God. That's the ultimate issue. It makes it so that people who hate God come to love God. 
because they experienced the way that the one who was whole was broken in our place. So Jed, if you'd put that slide up again. In response to this passage, again, we want to know God and we want to walk with him. We want to fight our sin so that we can know him and walk with him. We want to behold the terrible justice of God so that we'll be prompted to preach the gospel. And we want to fear God and pray for people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use the truths of this passage to remove any check in our spirit, any hesitation that we may feel when we think to ourselves, maybe I should try to take this conversation to the gospel. Lord, when we think that, if we're tempted to be silent, would you cause us to think again on the wrath that's revealed in these verses and the way that people are given over to dishonor and defilement and ruin and death. And Lord, would you make us bold to proclaim the gospel? Lord, would you also take these words and when we are tempted to sin, would you cause us to see that current of water as one that is too strong for us as one that we dare not get too close to, lest our foot slip and we find ourselves under the weight of crushing currents that will kill us. Lord, cause us to fear you, cause us to flee temptation. And Father, would you cause the weight of this passage to rest heavily upon us Cause it to come to our minds when the alarm clock goes off or when we find ourselves awake in the morning. And Lord, make it so that we don't turn on our phones and get distracted. Make it so that we don't start busying around with our duties and let the window that we have for prayer close. Lord, make us people who get on our knees before you, who experience your presence and who cry out to you that you would show mercy to the people that we know in our lives who need you. Lord, cause us to be diligent to cry out to you for grace through the day. And Lord, cause these words to renew in us a commitment to meditate on your word so that it becomes part of us, so that when we need grace in the day, by your spirit, through your word, you talk to us with the words of the Bible. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be sobered and transformed by the truth of this passage. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.